everybody, and welcome back to episode two of After the Ninth, the Insider Chuck Wagon Podcast. I'm your host, Dayton Sutherland, with my co-host, Cass Patterson. How are you doing today, Cass? I'm good. How are you, Dayton? Good, thank you. Is it still raining where you are? Yeah, we're in uh, we're in Dawson Creek, BC now, and uh, you know the WPCA is here, and I'm with the the WCA, and uh, yeah, it's still raining. We've rained out. Uh, just got a text today. We rained out uh, for the second time now, so. Um, kind of disappointing, um, just a little bit of issues with the track, um, you know, some things didn't quite get, uh, um, um, fixed when, you know, with too much water and whatnot and, uh, the moisture and, uh, track just couldn't handle it in, uh, small areas. So just for safety, uh, I guess they've called the races for the second night and, uh, we're looking forward to resuming on Friday. Well, hopefully that you guys can resume on Friday. Um, I guess. Do you know what makes them decide to call a race due to safety and weather in that? Yeah, for example, I mean, I never went out and looked at the track here, but uh, they, they it's just a, a difference in materials and whatnot in the track. And then, uh, you know, it's so it's uh, sometimes it's a little bit of a mismanagement, uh, you know, of the material on the track or um, the equipment being used and whatnot, and uh, I think that was the the case uh, here. I you know I could be mistaken, but I think they were using a piece of equipment, uh, and it kind of started creating some ruts uh, at certain places in the track. And uh, you know nobody knew that it would obviously, but once it did, um, then it had damaged uh, a certain spot, just a, a very small. They're talking like a four foot spot in the track, but it's right when you come on to uh, out of the infield onto the track. So. Um, you know, just, just for the safety of the horses, plus the WPCAs have had a long, long season so far and, uh, they haven't had a ton of time off. So I don't think it it necessarily hurts them, uh, to miss uh, a night of racing here. Um, and then they're talking about, uh, racing on Monday. Uh, so, you know, we don't know if that's, you know, going to happen or not, I guess by the time this podcast is aired, uh, we'll know for sure, but uh, it's just you know, just the safety thing for the horses. So uh, you know everybody always wants to do the right thing. So uh, that's that's what uh, you know is is on the minds of everybody's making those types of decisions. Absolutely, and I mean I, I guess that is the main thing is it's always about safety and about keeping the drivers and the horses as safe as possible. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the committees and, and, uh, and, and the committees on the WPCA and with the, with the rodeo and the associations and, uh, and the shows and whatnot, um, everybody does their very best and it's tough sometimes. Like when you get all this moisture, especially the summer we've been having, we get all this moisture. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's just damn near impossible to, uh, to not rain out sometimes, you know, and sometimes it's just the track, they, they played all the cards right and it just doesn't work out. Right. And then sometimes you don't know how much is rain's coming and, and, uh, you know, the track didn't get sealed overnight or something. And, and, uh, then, you know, there's uh, puddles of water and it's, uh, it's outdoor, it's mother nature, it's the elements. So, uh, sometimes there's nothing you can do. Sometimes you just get the cards, mother nature deals you and to pray that you have a full house. <laughs> Yeah, you betcha. So, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And uh, like I said, they'll, they'll uh, you know, resume tomorrow and uh, and uh, we'll get racing. Well, let's talk about racing for you. You were in competition last weekend. Um, we had Strathmore here. So if people follow us on Instagram, they saw I went to those races a couple of times, got videos and pictures and that. But we didn't see a whole lot of what you were doing because I wasn't there to you know do the social media aspect of that so how did your races go last weekend uh they went okay we actually got rained out uh one day as well i was in grimshaw again with the wca um grimshaw's uh you know a couple hours north of grand prairie alberta um so we were racing there we got rained out the first night i believe and then uh um or maybe the second night i just forget so i I raced one barrel either way uh and we had a good run out the one barrel and I was about four tenths of a second from the first spot. It's only a three-day show, so to win the show, uh, you know, it's an aggregate time. And I, I, I felt that I was close. And then we rained out the next night, and then I was on the three or four barrel, uh, depending on what you call it. It's actually a four barrel, um, but they call it a three. It's a four setup. And uh, I really had to go for it that night. So uh, I hooked the horses that I had to hook. I didn't really have any other option. 
and uh, it just didn't go my way. I, I hooked my good right wheeler uh, on the long barrel. I've had him for three years. I've hooked him uh, every opportunity I got on the long barrels, which is, you know, one and two. And uh, I tried hooking him on that four barrel, that short little turnaround, and it just did not work. He was just so charging, rammy, and I couldn't get him quite turned. And uh, I turned with the guys I was with. Um, but I, I honestly just felt that with the horsepower I had, I had to go for it, and I, I could out-turned him, um, had everything uh, played out perfectly, and, and uh, had I anticipated, uh, you know, more what the horses were doing, but there's just so much going on at one point, and I just couldn't, uh, it's, it's really tough to be, to be strong and quick at the same time, you know, the horses has a lot of mouth, uh, and the bat, it charges so much, so, yeah, I, I turned with those guys, I felt I should out-turn them, had I wanted to win the show, um, but yeah, we just didn't get it done and, uh, you know, moved on and now we're in uh, Dawson Creek and, uh, going to switch out the outfits a little bit. I'll switch wheel teams with the lead teams and, uh, and hopefully I can, uh, you know, make a bit better turn and, uh, you know, start out turning these guys. Okay. You're, you're talking about short and long barrel teams. And, uh, for those of us who might not, you know, be in that discussion it's kind of like those power play teams that you don't know in a hockey team uh do you mind explaining those to me and kind of just like i guess the other people on the podcast and how you make those decisions and what makes a good short uh barrel team and what makes a good long barrel team yeah so like i said long barrels the one and two they call it the long barrel because it's sort of a longer distance between the two barrels and then the short barrels are three and four and there's obviously a shorter distance between the barrels so um every guy's different you know some guys want horses that cheat a little bit um you know on the longer barrels uh you know so they can get kind of a quicker turn they don't have to drive as much and by cheating i mean you know the horse starts turning the barrel before you tell them to uh, and then all you have to do is, you know, hold the left line, hold them off. And then as soon as you, you know, release that left line, that horse, that right leader and the left leader just start to drop together and they start turning the top barrel. So it's a lot less work and uh, it's a little bit easier, you know, if you got a little, a lot of charge behind you with the wheel team. Um, so, you know, every guy picks something different. Um, a lot of guys like on the short barrel, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's 30 feet or something on the four barrel. Um, and usually guys will keep their three, four, you know, teams together. They use the same team for both barrels. So they'll uh, have horses that, you know, can really start um, and, and then, you know, really get that pop. And then as soon as you get to the top barrel, it, it feels like two jumps. Like it, it feels like the horn goes and you're turning on that four barrel. So, um, you know, they want a horse, horses on the right side that, that really turn quick. Like Lightning Luke, uh, Luke Turnier is like the perfect example. Um, I don't know how he does it. He drives it as, uh, you know, left line. He gets these horses that um, it's two jumps and then the whole outfit just folds over top. And, and a lot of times he's so consistent with it. He'll turn like the whole barrel will uh, turn around uh, just by both of his hubs, you know, spinning that, that canvas on top of the barrel. It's, it's, uh, it's fun to watch. Uh, next time anybody watches uh, Luke turn, he does it almost every single time. Just, just watch him, you know, how the horses work and they, they turn so tight. So um, a lot of horses or a lot of guys, sorry, uh, you know, like both types of horses on the shorter barrels. And then the longer barrel teams, uh, you want something with a lot of charge going to the top because the distance is so long. So, um, so you don't get outturned by guys like Luke on the three, four, you want horses that uh, really, really run fast or charge, you know, to the top barrel. Um, so you don't lose that, that, uh, time, you know, when you're trying to cover all that ground at once. So that's a little bit about, you know, uh, what guys like on what barrels, um, to me, the lead teams are more or less the same. Um, you know, sometimes you can drive a, a little bit of a tougher mouth horse, I'd say on the one barrel or something, uh, because you have more time to correct or, or slightly correct. And uh, all you really have to do on a one barrel on a decent track where the, where the running is on the rail, because usually, you know, the rail is the, the shortest way around the track. Um, all you really have to do is, is be there and uh, don't get outturned and don't lose your spot on the rail because then, uh, you know, you already got a wagon length on the guys just being on the inside. So, um, yeah, no guys separate those teams and, uh, and it's just kind of like having like a, you know, a, a, you know, first line in hockey, you know, that, uh, the stars will be on and that'd be maybe say the one, two barrel, because those are your uh, best odds. So a lot of guys will kind of double down, 
um, on those barrels and then they'll put the, put the real nice horses or the best horses on that one. And then the next one is kind of, uh, kind of, a um, to put a lot of running horses since you're on the outside, um, you know, horses that have, have a lot of speed and, and, and distance in them. Cause sometimes you'd be running three, four wide on the track. You can't out turn the guys or you can't get in behind or whatever. So, um, everybody's strategy is different. Um, uh, and a lot of guys, um, you know, have it figured out really well, you know, lightning loop being one of them and, and whatnot. So yeah, it's a little bit about, uh, uh, those different types of teams and managing that. You know, that sounds like a lot of, like, chalkboard talk that goes on behind the scenes that no one really thinks about or talks about. Yeah, like, I, I don't know how much, like, I, like how much sense I made <laughs> with all that. Like, it's, uh, you know, it's hard not to use the terms and stuff. And, and uh, you know, if I was talking to another driver, uh, that would just be um, common sense, right? Like, uh, a lot of people know. And then, and then some guys get, like, way way more into it and uh and can tell you way more complex things like for example um i was just talking to you know my cousin mitch uh just yesterday and we were talking about lead teams and i was you know kind of saying i'm having a little bit of trouble uh finding those horses that want to just drop and uh turn around really quickly like a lot of my right leaders i have to keep turning around the barrels which makes it a little bit tougher because you have to um drive the whole time not just you know let the horse work automatically and usually the best ones do work automatically um and he was saying that uh you know sometimes a good right leader will will switch leads meaning um horses kind of have i guess for a very very poor explanation they have you know right and left uh hands like they're they're one side dominant uh and they'll switch their lead mean they'll start using the other foot forward first so they'll kind of drop their right shoulder that right hand leader and then that allows uh the left hand leader to uh turn sharper with the right hand leader so that's kind of how you get those horses um you know to turn a little bit quicker or at least uh get a little bit better of a working lead team and so you know there's there's lots of strategy that goes into it for guys and, and some guys will watch tape some guys just, just watch it as it's happening you know they say oh look how that horse you know, switch leads and drops the shoulder around the, you know, the the top barrel there and stuff. So there, there's obviously tons to go into it, but uh, you know, we'll we'll definitely dive deeper into those things uh, in later episodes. Yeah, but you know, it's awesome to hear, and it's like it's really exciting to kind of learn these inside tricks that, as a spectator or someone from the sidelines, you don't really understand. Um, I guess talking about being excited uh, for Steph, we are excited for our guest this week. At least I'm excited. You have these conversations with him all the time. Yeah, no, yeah, we got our, we got my grandpa on uh, to talk. You know, I, I just thought I, I said a couple times in the interview that, um, you know, we talked about this for and whatnot, uh, which we have. I, I mean, I, I talked to him forever. I try to get as much information, you know, as I can from him because he's got so much to say and he's got so much knowledge and whatnot over 50 years. And uh, for those who've ever heard Kelly talk or for those who have heard Dayton talk, and I say this with admiration, Dayton, it is a two-part interview because they talked for an hour and a half. Yeah, um, it ran long, and uh, if you guys know my grandpa, uh, he could talk forever. I mean, he could talk hours and hours of time to anybody, So, um, and just loves talking about the sport and whatnot. So, uh, you know, I'll probably get him back on in the future. Um, don't know when, but, uh, yeah, no, he, he's got lots of stuff to say, that's for sure. And we're on the phone with 12-time world champion and 12-time stampede champion, one of us calls him Grandpa. That one would not be me, as I still want to call him Mr. Sutherland. Uh, Kelly Sutherland, how are you doing today, Kelly? Hey, fantastic. That's awesome. Um, are you excited? I guess tonight you're going to be at COP and uh, doing a speech there. Uh, are you excited for that? Yes. Uh, my friend uh, Cheryl Bernard uh, contacted me earlier to come speak on the uh, equine aspect of uh we sport a truck wagon racing, uh, actually from June. So uh, she had contacted me. So I'm uh, I'm quite excited to uh, kind of give the message of, uh, of what I think is probably Calgary's own. Uh, you know, they really own this sport, and uh, it's worldwide now. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm pumped. 
that's exciting. Uh, I'm going to kind of hand the reins over to Dayton now as he uh, has most of the questions to ask you. So, Dayton, it's all you. All right. So, uh, I'm just going to go right into the hard questions. I want to know who the best driver uh, you ever came across in the sport. I believe I know the answer. Um, and if not driver, drivers. Like, who were the who were the top guys that uh, you know could uh, skin barrels and uh, whatnot that you came across in your career? Well, I think uh, relating back to when uh, I was your age you know, or even younger, Dayton, uh, the two best drivers that uh, that were put out in front of me as a young kid were Ralph Vegan, uh, who I believe was probably the premier driver. And uh, he always said uh, Halley Wagenbaugh was, was the best. Uh, I, uh, unfortunately, Halley quit, uh, you know, a few years after I had started. But both of those uh, individuals had, uh, um, I guess, nerves of steel. I mean, the sport was so different back in the old days. Uh, a lot of times, I believe just about every night uh, a wagon would go upside down at all the venues. And uh, that was simply because the turning surfaces and the racetrack weren't as groomed as they are today. And secondly, uh, I think uh, the barrels were set uh, far, far uh, harder to turn on a right angle. So that increased uh, increased your chances of, of upsetting your wagon as you entered the racetrack. And just about every night it was. And, and a lot of people, I mean, because you were going to go upside down and have the risk of getting run over, which many people did, including myself, uh, they just did not have the courage or the, or the stomach on the, on the one barrel or on the, on the tough barrel to, uh, to let the horses perform at 100%. A lot of guys turned it, then they pulled, and they would come out late or last so those guys had skill that i would only dream of when uh, when they picked up four lines i guess my kind of question as you talk about ralph vegan and that is how did you get into the sport i i I don't think i've ever actually heard this story or learned how you uh, started uh, racing well well i think you know as as a kid when i was about Early as I can remember, seven, eight years old, my dad had got an old thoroughbred horse uh, from an uncle of his in Regina who was in the thoroughbred business. My dad loved thoroughbred horses, loved racing, the racing aspect. So I started as a as a kid galloping these horses and, well, basically running away. Sometimes he would be beside me on the saddle horse when we were training in the in the fields of, of 200 acres or something so we wouldn't run through fences and i i actually started you know riding these thoroughbred horses when i was just just a kid i rode horses my whole life because we didn't have motorbikes we didn't have i mean in the peace country the city was four thousand it was not sixty eight thousand. the the highway to edmonton was graveled so we were we were remote to say the least in them days and and we would go to these small fall fairs all over the country, and, and guys would have thoroughbreds or what they called in them days warm bloods. Uh, and, and that meant that somebody had a, had a fairly well-bred or fast quarter horse, and he would breed it, and, you know, it would either be a stud, and he'd breed a thoroughbred mare or else vice versa. And, and these were the horses that were raced in, uh, in these small meets, all through the peace country. And they were really just small one-day and two-day county fairs. So I got my introduction there. I loved the, the speed and the thrill on the back of a horse. And uh, I, I just fell in love with the thoroughbred horse itself. Scared as, as, as any kid, but was felt very rewarding to be in front. So I, I, I did that for till I was about... 13, 14 years old till I got heavier. And uh, and then my dad had partnered with Dave Lewis, uh, who's won the Stampede. He's, he's since passed away, but they partnered together on a chuck wagon outfit, and uh, Dave Lewis drove it, and my dad and him uh, owned it, and my dad had 
the farm and the ranch to house the horses. Dave lived in the city of Grand Prairie, so they had asked me to come along and uh, be a barn hand, really, because uh, I was getting too heavy to ride these horses. And uh, and I went that first year when I was 14, and I started uh, uh, galloping out riding horses, and, and because it just was natural to me. And I started out riding, and, and from there I just progressed and started driving. You talked a little bit about uh, Ralph Fegan, uh before. Can you uh, specify a little bit more on, like, um, uh, I know Ralph was an exceptional driver as well, and I've heard that from a, a number of different guys. Like, um, was uh, was he doing things different, like with his lines and whatnot, that, that other guys just wouldn't do? Like, was he fairly innovative with his driving style? Well, I think, uh, you know, first of all, he worked with horses from the time he was my age because he come out of that Rimby, uh, that Rimby country, and they logged his his parents logged and of course everything was done with horses in them days back in the in the thirties and the forties. So they logged with horses. So he drove horses. So he, he had a feel for lines, although probably be driving a team rather than four horses uh, in those circumstances. But I think uh, the easiest way for me to explain what I what I think is uh is the combination to be an exceptional driver is you use the example of, of uh, a horseback rider or a jockey. And you have to understand that in today's world, most of them are, are Mexicans or they're from that descent from Mexico seem to be, or at least Spanish descent uh, have become the best jockeys in the world. They're riding in the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness and all the, the top end race. Right. In North America, well, those people are the same weight. They start in the same place. They 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 are raised under the same circumstances as the jockeys that are riding in uh, Century Downs or in Lethbridge, for example. And the the difference is the guys at the Kentucky Derby will make ten or uh, fifteen million dollars a year because they're they're paid on a, a percentage of the purses. So the biggest, the, the, the jockeys, the best in the world make $10 million. The difference between those guys and the ones that make $100,000 a year on the circuits in Alberta, and possibly they make a half a million or a million dollars in Toronto, the only difference between those guys is they have two skills, in my opinion, they have a built-in time clock in their head so they can tell at any point in a race to the tenth of a second how fast they're going, which is very important in a horse race. So they're either doing the first fraction in 24, 22 and change, 24 and 1, so many seconds. They can tell. They don't need to look at a watch. It's a built-in skill set they have. The second thing they have is they have the ability to communicate with the lines to the horse. The horse has no idea which guy is on him, but they have that ability to relax the horse, to talk to the horse through the lines. And that is the two skills that separate people making 10 million, people making 100,000. And I believe that chuck wagon drivers are the same. I think the very elite will really communicate with their lines. So the horse can only get a signal by his mouth because that's the only attachment to the driver and if he's getting jerked rather than eased and it all happens in a split hundredth of a second when you're moving your hands you and the odd time he does need a jerk so that that he doesn't get out of pattern and then a release very quick those people the top drivers in the world have that ability they they can communicate and relax an outfit they they can cue a horse at the exact time, and they cue them. They don't really pull on them. They cue them. And I, I just think that them are the, the factors that determine uh, being the elite and getting the most out of the horse, because that's the object, is you want that horse to work to 100% of his potential. And what you actually are is you're just helping him get there. And that's how I view truck wagon racing. 
And I know we talked about uh, this in like a previous conversation uh, that you and I had um, about like me being too bullheaded and, and trying to drive horses that, uh, um, I, you know, I probably shouldn't be driving uh, and, uh, you know, it's too much to steer and they're going too fast in the wrong direction. Um, do you still think that, uh, you know, the courage and whatnot that Ralph and uh, Hallie had uh, still plays as much of a factor uh, in today's sport or less of one? Well, I think it, it displays less because the chance of risk, although the chance of risk of injury has declined and, and rightfully so because of the safety measures. I mean, you know, we had a lot of accidents in the early years because of the wagons, the equipment. Uh, there was no finance, no money, no finances, and people could not do it. And, and I think a lot of those competitors weren't going as fast. Maybe the top 20% were, were at a competing level. That, that could win. The rest would just go there to, to perform at a slower pace. You, you slow the sport down, you're going to have less accidents. But right. I think the courage, I mean, you can, you can eliminate all of the drivers that, that have any fear of injury, uh, any fear that don't have that winning aspect win at all costs within the rules, uh, keeping in mind protecting, you know, humans first, horses second. But those those things also elevate a driver. When I look at a field of 36 drivers at the Calgary Stampede, I rate in my own mind instantly by watching them if I can get a close-up of how they drive and, and how quickly they respond to to how horses react because you're not driving a car uh, that's that's doing the same thing every trip. What you're doing is you're actually working with livestock, so you're going to get thrown a curveball. I can watch and tell which drivers have higher skill levels. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the driver's going to win because the horses aren't equal. So if, if, if a, 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 a driver that does not have the top skill can still win if his horses are 25 or 30% better than the driver with all the skill. Because I still think horses are 50% of the equation, possibly higher now as they ease the settings of the barrels. And uh, I think that possibly horses now are getting encroaching that 60 to 70% equation to win. I think the other thing, in the old days, it was always 50% horse, 25% skill, 25% luck. So right. if, you, if you were way above in any of those categories, which I think the top drivers were, you could win with less horsepower. You could win with 40% horsepower because you had 35 40% of the skill. But in today's world, I think horses command at least 60 65% of the winning combination. And uh, I, I just look at it that way. The, the, what I relate to, like a driver, and I'll, I always go back to this story when I was a kid because I was as nervous as anybody. I mean, I, I am high energy and, and whatever. Is I was sitting one time, uh, wasn't in the final at the Calgary Stampede, but Ralph Deegan was, and I had the fortune to travel with him for 20 years. So they had some kind of a, a follow-up, uh, not a fatality, but a follow-up of the truck wagon races in the heat before Ralph. Ralph was waiting for the final of the $100,000 dash, and he was sitting there, and he, he was odds-on favorite to win it. I can't remember if he won it that year or not, but he was odds-on there. He was sitting there longer than uh, previously planned because of the holdup in the race before? Yes, because, as you know, we're lined up in sequence to go, so there's no holdup for the show. So it, they called, they radioed over and said, we're going to be 10 minutes. So here we are waiting for the finals, and I'm... I'm young and pretty hyper, and I jumped out of the wagon, and I held his lead team. And because the horses sometimes get antsy, they're in routine, a horse. So they were waiting an extra 10 minutes, I believe, or 15, because they, they had to get something to pull the wagon off. They had to lead the horses back to the barn and, 
and get everything and then the heralds and equipment to groom the track. And then all of a sudden, the guy hollers at me from the gate, all right, we're ready to go. Ralph was first out, so he was on barrel four. I remember we were sitting right by the racetrack because we line up four, three, two, one, ten to the track. And I said, okay, Ralph. And I looked up and he had crossed his legs and fell asleep on the seat. <laughs> now, really? you, you talk about somebody that is totally relaxed going into a $100,000 race. We're ready. Oh, he said, are we ready to go now? Yep. Out he went. And that is a lot of what has to happen to a champion driver. He has to be no different to the horses, whether it's a $100,000 race or it's, or it's a practice. And that is one thing that a lot of drivers have trouble with because that horse relates something different when he goes in for a big race that that guy is nervous because he right. feels different on the lines. And I need a very, very valuable lesson there that you make sure those horses just think it's another race. We're going to go the same as we always do, and we go go for broke. And I think that those are the kind of the traits that the the elite drivers in the world had, you know, as, as I've watched. Right. Huh. So, and that's something that you were always excelled at is uh, is thriving under pressure, is it not? Like I remember in 2011, 2012 and whatnot, and, and uh, the year you won back-to-back and you were explaining, um, you know, what was happening before the races with the horses and you said like everything was just uh, incredibly calm. You also had like, I remember the outfit you had Deb and Reggie and uh, money and Spitfire, I believe. And, and Reggie's a horse you had for, uh, uh, from three to well now, which is 25, 27, however old he is. Um, so that was something that, uh, I know that you had, uh, to thrive under pressure and whatnot. Um, the other next question I'd like to ask you is, uh, in your first, uh, very first stampede win, um, one, how old were you? And, uh, you know, how was that experience winning something that uh, guys that you were traveling with, uh, you know, had only won um, maybe once or if not at all? And then uh, were there any more stampede wins uh, or, say, world championships or years or anything like that that were, like, sweeter than the rest? Well, I think the first year I went to the Calgary Stampede was, I was 17 years old. We went everywhere in them days uh, for, you know, from Coverdale, BC, all the way to Morris, Manitoba. And uh, it was very intimidating, uh, to say the least. Uh, we were, we were, I, the fortunate thing for me, because of, of the way my genetic makeup was, was I was out riding every heat except what I was driving in. And so there was eight heats in them days, not nine. There was 32 wagons that raced. And that number did not change till 1981, and they added one more heat. So for all of the heats, I would just have my dad jump in the wagon after my race, and I would ride previous. I would take the heat off usually prior to my race, and then he would pick the outfit up as then crest went back for the for the weave back and the thank to the crowd, thank you. And then I would bail off and get back on an outriding horse. So I, to me, I could take all of that uh, nervousness and uh, fear, whatever. Uh, I could do that with a you know through the outriding horses and riding a horse and get rid of. I guess all the adrenaline that was stored in my body. And uh, I made so many mistakes the first few years that I drove. I mean, uh, I think the first year I won one or two game monies in Calgary, and then I would go out and hit two barrels or whatever. And, you know, I finished, I don't even know where I finished. It be in the record, but I know, I think it was the eighth or ninth, but, the, the other thing is, I mean, I always had a lot of horsepower, but I learned probably within the first three or four years, five years, that if I did not have a completely broke lead team that, that I could drive, 
and the only real power I needed was behind. Because it's if you can't steer and stay away from penalties, you're not going to win. It don't matter right. how fast you roll. And I learned that. And how I learned it was I never had a good right leader. And uh, I made it through the, the 1972 Stampede when I was 20. And I made it through uh, with the first proven right-hand leader, that, that good one that I had. And I actually won the race. And uh, I had a late rider that night, and I lost it by 28 so I was second. But, you know, the good part was my traveling partner, Ralph Hagen, who was 50 at that time, had never won the Stampede. He was second eight times, and he won it. So him and I come neck and neck to the wire. And, uh, but that, had a wasn't a da- that wasn't a dash, was it? That was an aggregate back in those the, days of Stampede? That's right. Uh, the dash did not come till into the into the late seventies or early eighties. I believe the late seventies is when they would put the top four guys together, and they would run uh, as a dash. But keeping in mind, they still carried the aggregate time forward. So the only thing you won was the big pot of money, but but the championship uh, was was still declared on aggregate timing. So that was that was in the 80s. And then, of course, they've changed it for more crowd appeal since. And, you know, sport has to change. I mean, uh, can never stay the same to be uh, to be appealing to the people. Right. So, so Ralph won it that year, and that was big for him. That was his first time. And then you won it when you were 21. Is that correct? I won it in, in 1974. I was 22. So I think the next year I tipped over uh, on the bottom of one. And uh, I know two years, I think in 1971 and in 1973, I upset uh, coming off of the bottom of one. And of course, you get no time then. So, But in 1974, I won it, which was the first time they moved to the new uh, grandstand and what we called the new plant. So the new grandstand, the new five-eighths of a mile racetrack. And uh, prior to that, it was uh, grandstand, I would think, hold 12, 15,000 people and uh, a half-mile racetrack. So when they went to the new plant in 1974 is when we had to change the barrels because they had made the infield for the rodeo very shallow and we could not adapt our old barrel setting into it. And... Uh, and that really eased the chance of uh, of a wreck. I mean, there was hardly a wagon ever upset after that in the Calgary at the Calgary Stampede since 1974. I think there's, you know, the, the latest one is is uh, Rick Fraser, you know, four or five years ago. But at the Calgary Stampede, there was at least, uh, well, there wouldn't be one every night, but there would have been probably. 10 in the total that would have upset it coming out of the barrels because of the, the barrel setting was extremely difficult. And in the old days, that's what they rated the skill of the driver on was, you know, could that guy have horses trained number one to do it? And number two, would he allow the horses to work at a hundred percent, knowing that he could well be upside down and get run over. And, uh, not that, meant to drive them at a hundred percent. Yes, that is that's exactly right. So there was a you know the, the 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 first big transformation in the sport of chuck wagon racing to me happened in 1974 with with the barrel settings leaving me. Right. Um, so when you were winning in Calgary, you went on a stretch there for I just forget. I mean, you've told me a hundred times, but. Um, I think it was four or five years where you run it uh, all in a row, um, similar to what Ben's Miller did uh, the last, you know, um, five, six years. Um, you had a, a really good lead team, which I assume will be the answer to this question. Um, who were your best horses or best horse uh, in your career? Well, I think uh, I wanted uh, five out of six years and was okay. second the other year. Uh, with uh, a gray and a chestnut horse. And although 
you know, I've had a lot of fantastic horses in my career, but uh, what set them apart was in that stretch of time, I won the Calgary Stampede off every barrel in the sudden death. I won it off barrel four, three, two, and one. And uh, I think that that's important because now in today's world, as you know, uh, the fans may not know, but barrel one, I would say, would have an 80% advantage. And it always has had. I mean, if you look back in history, I'm sure, in the dashes, Calgary uh, Stampede Championship would have been won at least 80% of the time off barrel one. So that means two things. The the, uh, the uh, barrels are not, uh, they're set too equal. <laughs> because in the old days, the guy off four could win it, uh, especially if the guy off one didn't turn his horses loose, risking the fact that he was probably going to upset. Or if he was lucky with the, with the proper turn, the exact proper turn, and the, in the exact uh, uh, surface on the racetrack where you entered so the wagon could skid, uh, then he was going to win it. But otherwise, he was, if he made one fatal mistake on the top, bottom, at any point, he was going to go upside down if he was turning the horses loose. Which, by the way, Ralph Deegan did in 1973, winning the stampede till the last night, turned him loose on barrel one, uh, driving for uh, Tom Dorchester, who had got kicked in the ribs the show before, broke a bunch of ribs, and he had uh, he selected Rob Vegan to drive uh, for him in the Calgary Stampede, and he had two outfits. He gave his uh, second outfit that was racing as well to his son, Dallas Dorchester, but they selected Ralph because he was by far the best, and he was winning the Stampede easily, and he upset the last night in uh, and would not be a something that final in them days, but it would be the final race. And uh, just had to actually, to me, I think that way, Ralph should have pulled a little bit. But he was not built like that. He did right. not change demeanor because he was, a, he was a couple seconds in front. He could have run behind the guy in front. It would not right. have mattered. But yeah. uh, he, was, he was not built like that, Ralph. It was hell-bent for leather, as they say. Didn't matter where you come from you drive drive to your best and you allow the horses to work and uh, i think you know with the one reason that i surpassed those guys in numbers both Howie and, uh, and ralph was always a guy that tried to stay ahead of the curve so when we went to from a half mile to a five-eighths mile racetrack that fall I bought all the long-distance horses I could buy because, you know, keeping in mind that that last quarter of, or eighth of a mile that, that makes up that difference is where the race is won and lost. And, uh, and I just easily, with those horses, I did not have to be in front uh, when I turned out of the barrels if I had a little trouble. I was in front when I hit the wire by many, and I was going away from them. So it was, uh, I think I always tried to look at where the sport was going and tried to be ahead of the curve, both in horsepower, in uh, horse care and stabling. Uh, we built the first barn for horses. I mean, my, my dad and, and I and the welder designed it. And uh, The first was, liner. The first built. liner that you house horses in a place where they don't have accommodation or box stalls, which is a n- number of places in today's world, not the Calgary Stampede, but a number of other places. And otherwise, you just have no place to keep your horses away from the elements. So, I mean, in today's world, it's a given. You cannot compete if you don't have a barn anywhere. And uh, that's just advancement in the sport. So we were the first people to do that. It was just I just always looked at the sport as being challenging. And if I got beat... I just spent all the time I could uh, figuring out how I could get back into that winner's circle. Right. So um, with Ralph and Bobby, uh, the the gray and the chestnut, the lead team, um, were they that much exceptional in the rest, like stay in the run department when you bought them? Or was it mostly in the barrels or did they just have a combination of both? Because I heard, you know, uh, I heard how good they were from you, but I've also heard from other guys that, um, you know, uh, that they were 
likely the best outfit that they've ever watched. Uh, just in, they, they would work in sync, not to mention they were, uh, you know, best of friends in the pen. They were inseparable. Uh, you know, there's a picture hanging on your wall um, that was painted by, I believe, Carolyn Sinclair, is that correct? That, um, uh, you know, they were eating all the same feed buckets. So what were those two like? Like, would they just, you know, just so much chemistry or what was the key there? Well, it was interesting. One horse was rescued from uh, slaughter in Spokane by a guy named Bobby Gimmer, and uh, he was the chestnut horse. Uh, he was sold at a racetrack. He was extremely sore. He was quite a small featured horse and uh, ended up coming to Bobby Gimmer, who was racing on our circuit. Uh, he got a call from, from uh, the meat guy down there, and he said, I have a small horse for $300. He said, uh, you know, do you want him? He looks fairly sound. And Bobby Gimmer said, yes, put him on a truck, send him up to Olds. I think that's where Bobby was. The other horse was a horse purchased by uh, Edgar Baptiste or the Baptiste family. And he, he was actually claimed and was quite a, quite a good racehorse as, as a two-year-old in Winnipeg. Uh, his name was Prairie Premier, and I called him Ralph because I think the best Premier uh, in my knowledge, to hit the province, at least so far, has been Ralph Klein, and Ralph Klein has a friend of mine. So, I mean, uh, I told Ralph when he came to the barn, it's not, it's not, you should be proud, because that's the best left-hand leader that's ever walked. And uh, because some people, if you nickname a horse after him, they think of derogatory for some reason, but no, I mean, I nicknamed him because he, I know, was the best ever. And he actually helped the right-hand leader, who was who, who was not the best uh, right-hand leader. He 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 became the best working with with his partner. They were both, uh, I believe, six years old when we got him. Uh, Bobby, I think, was five, and and the gray horse was six. And that was part one with Kelly Sutherland. A huge thank you to Kelly for spending the time to uh, talk with me and Dayton, mostly Dayton. I just kind of sat there and enjoyed and listened to uh, kind of both of them talk about the sport, their passion for it. Um, if you did hear in the interview, uh, me and Kelly talked a bit about him being at the Canada Hall of Fame and giving a talk there and uh, he he had an interesting story, Jason, that I was kind of hoping you could build off of. He was talking about, uh, I guess, what you could call your dad's Canadian Idol, a horse that Kelly said he bought for $900 uh, back in the day. And uh, your dad ended up getting this horse, and he's been with your dad uh, up until Stampede. Um, so I, I, I don't know if you can uh, kind of talk to me about that and give uh, me and the listeners a little bit of a backstory on the horse. Yeah, um, yeah. We talked about uh, Logan's horse, Canadian Idol, and uh, each guy uh, might have one or two of these horses in their lives, uh, in their career story that you know are just their their favorites, their best. Uh, uh, usually both, you know, their franchise horse or or whatever, however you want to say it. Um, and and Dad's horse was a horse named Art. I don't remember um, his full paper name, but his we called him Art, anyways. And uh, I don't know how old Arch has passed away, um, probably about 25, 28, something like that. But, um, yeah, he passed away. He was Dad's best horse, uh, you know, for a lot of years. Uh, he drove him on the lead. And uh, like you say, he was, a, he was a $900 horse. There's actually YouTube clips on my dad's YouTube channel about this horse, you know, from seven, eight years ago and, and how he retired him in the pasture and whatnot. And that's something that Logan said, uh, too, actually, that, you know, Kane Idol would would die on his farm and, uh, and, uh, you know, live out the rest of his years there and, uh, horses die just like people, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, if they're, if they're, uh, fortunate and live a healthy life, they die of, uh, of old age. And that's what happened to Art. I mean, uh, he's my dad's best horse. Uh, we grew up with him. And I don't remember being around without Art. I mean, I think Art was there, uh, you know, my whole life. So, um, just a member of the family and, and it sucks to see him go, but, uh, is that just what happens? Um, he died of a heart attack 
you know, um, at 25 years old, uh, we haven't exercised him or trained him, you know, in, uh, in years, he's just been uh, eating grass and hay and, uh, the odd time, uh, oats and whatnot. And he runs around the pasture, um, you know, with his, uh, with his, uh, other friends and horses in there and stuff. And, uh, and, uh, just lives a retired life. And, uh, yeah, no, he, he's a fortunate horse and uh, and got to live out the rest of his life on dad's farm. And uh, he was such a good horse uh, to my family. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's uh, great to repay, you know, the horse, um, especially one that's been so loyal and uh, and does that, you know, for you for so long. So, um, yeah, no, that was uh, that was sad and, uh, and tough on mom and dad, especially because they've had horse for so long. But uh, it's a reality, right? Just like an old dog, and uh, they passed away, and, and that's just how it is. But it's cool to hear those stories, I guess, the stories that, like your grandpa said, they don't get told. They kind of just, like, I, I guess they're not the glamour stories that sometimes get picked up, so they kind of just are on the back burner. So for your dad and I mean, even Logan and other drivers to have these horses for them, like they are family. For the, for sure family. And the funny thing about it is there was no outcry uh, when Art died during the Calgary stampede. You know what I mean? Like nobody talked about it. There's no news outlets. There was no petition to stop Mark Sutherland from chuck wagon racing just because, you know, Art died of a heart attack, like, uh, you know, happened to Troy's horse or uh, events that happened in at Stampede that, uh, you know, even Logan highlighted uh, in his interviews. So, um, yeah, like it, it's just, uh, it's something that's natural and it's something that happens uh, uh, on a regular basis with livestock. They pass away, they're living animals. So, um, it's tough to lose a, a horse that you've had, you know, for that long, like 20 something years. Uh, you know, I just don't know exactly the age, like I said, that he, that, that art was, and, uh, and I don't know how long, um, um, dad had him for, but, uh, I tell you what, they put a lot, a lot of money, uh, into that horse. And, uh, you know, it's so expensive to keep a horse around, especially, um, if they're just, uh, you know, eating grass, and you're feeding them hay all the time, you know, you wouldn't think it, but those costs adds up, especially just to have them around. So, um, you know, uh, Art, like I said, was, was such a good horse to them and, uh, and, uh, he, he got to live out the rest of his life on the ranch. So, um, yeah, you know, they're members of the family, like you said. I, I guess we heard your grandpa talk about two of his, uh, favorite and best horses and he's not helping me on my mom's belief that grays are the best horse just saying he's not helping me on that one um but you're saying art could was probably one of your dad's best horses and favorite horses and again we're bringing up canadian idol who i guess is now kind of like a staple on our podcast um and uh he's one of logan's so do you have one yet like you're still pretty young and pretty early on into your career do you have a horse yet that is quite i guess your best or favorite horse yeah i got a best horse you always got a top player right so um or 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 an mvp most valuable player whatever um right now uh my best one uh it'd probably be a toss-up between a horse uh i got from my cousin mitch named fitz or um one i named uh nevada um who's been on the right wheel for me that i was talking about for three years um same trip every time he's got big run uh loves to go to work uh you know he's mad every time he doesn't want to get a run he's that type of horse so um he's definitely uh probably my my most valuable or my best horse so far um there's a little bit there's a little horse um that me and you were talking about um a little bit earlier and uh, that's a horse named henny that i have and uh you know I believe that uh, he's going to be, you know, my Canadian idol. Um, you know, he's just a little five-year-old horse. I bought him from a friend of mine uh, who sadly passed away this spring in, in Winnipeg. Um, and, uh, you know, he told me about the horse and he said, yeah, you know, he's going to be a good one. He's going to be a good one. I can pick these out. And, you know, I thought, well, I can't even pick them out. My grandpa can't pick them out. So how can you, you know? And, uh, but he had the horse and he raised the horse and stuff. And, uh, I gotta say he was right. Like <laughs> he picked out this horse and, and, uh, he's been one of the, what already one of the best horses I've had ever. Um, he's such a quick little agile horse. Uh, he's got the complete right attitude. Um, he's easy to drive. He loves to go to work. And uh, he moves like a cat, like he, he could do a 360, uh, you know, 
just standing there jumping up and down. He's, uh, he's so athletic and, uh, and uh, loves to race. So, uh, you know, it's exciting to have those horses and to build off them. And as soon as you find one just like that, you just, you get this feeling in your stomach and uh, you just start to know. And, and uh, you know, it might take three, four years before this horse, you know, gets to the level that, uh, that uh, he needs to be because he's, he's a smaller horse. Uh, he's going to be on the lead and he's, like I said, he's so athletic. So, uh, you know, that's where you need the athleticism is on, you know, the right or left lead to, to really, you know, get around the, the barrels and uh, to turn quick, to drop those shoulders, things that we were talking about. Yeah, no, it'll be some time before he's at the level of say Canadian Idol or, um, you know, he might never be at the level that uh, Grandpa's were at, which is Ralph and Bobby, which, you know, Grandpa believes we're two of the best all time. And I've heard that from other guys. So, um, you know, that's that's a little bit something that I believe is going to be, you know, stay in my Canadian Isle or my Ralph and Bobby or, or uh, whatever. How do you, like, I guess we talk about, like, what the best horses are. And um, th- 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 I'm sure there's some guys who think bloodlines and all that has something to say uh, about it. But, I mean, the horse that we were just talking about, that was your dad. I mean, he was a $900 horse. I, I'm not sure about his bloodlines, but... Like, do those play a factor into it, or is it really just it depends on the horse? Yeah, you know what? I bought horses, you know, off the track with some guys. I've shopped with them, and uh, they look at all these little, you know, detailed intricacies, uh, you know, on the paper, you know, on the racing form. You know, they look for things like early speed and uh, the other things they look for maybe is, uh, you know, long distance for like a wheeler. Say they want a horse to run a mile um and then they look for things like you say like bloodline like we'll buy you know half brothers to uh, you know some of our best horses and a lot of times they'll turn out like one time uh over the years dad and grandpa had 25 half brothers uh come throughout their barn um there's no more available now uh you know the 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 stud uh passed away so they you know can't make those types of horses anymore um but so they do follow bloodline stuff so some guys are really intricate with it and then some guys uh, don't really care, you know, my grandpa being one of them. Obviously, he'll buy a half-brother to, you know, one of his best horse to try him out to see if he works. But uh, here's grandpa's secret to buying horses, and I'll say it on the podcast. It's it's uh, fill the trailer. That's what he says, right? So, um, <laughs> he'll yeah, he'll just buy as many as he can and, and try them all because um, you can you can go out, or, or at least in, in his mind, you could go out and uh, – and you know be real picky by a nice big strong bay horse and uh and uh, you know get everything right and then he comes back and he doesn't want to be a, a chuck leg horse right so now you got to find a home for him he's supposed to you know be your your next superstar or whatever right and then uh you could go out and like the 900 dollar horse my, for example my dad's best horse right now um was bought for 900 dollars actually and uh, he's a three-year-old with a bow, and he made like you know ten or eleven thousand dollars on the track, like which is not much if you know horses. So, um, and and he was a Manitoba-bred horse, like just a just a brutal, brutal form. And uh, and the guy begged my grandpa to take him, uh, and uh, you know my grandpa did because that's his philosophy. Uh, he didn't really want to, but that was his philosophy. Filled a trailer and ended up being the most valuable horse in the entire load, and, and better than the ones that he paid, uh, you know tenfold the money for so um yeah you just i don't know in our experience you never know and then some guys are really picky and you know uh that works out for them too so there's no science behind it or i don't believe and i i don't think because uh um you know there's no proof and what what's the best way um what i think is uh you know guys know what works best for them and uh and that's how they uh build off of their experience and their prior knowledge they just uh, don't switch up what they're doing so um it just depends who you are and i guess that's like again referencing hockey because i've decided that check wagon racing and hockey are like a cross and we just need to accept it and move on with it um in hockey i mean you can look at someone in juniors and they are like amazing and fantastic and blah 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 so you can offer them a $10 million contract and then they come up to the NHL and they can't shoot a puck or shit. Yeah, so- no, like it's, it's, it's more or less the same uh, with shock wagon racing. Like I had a horse like that this year. I've been breaking him for three years and, uh, and every time I break him, he's just, he's a runaway horse. So what that means is he's just um, so aggressive and so excited to run. 
um, all the time that, that uh, he's, he's next to impossible to control, right? And, and shock wagon racing, you have to stay, you have to be able to control your horses uh, on the line. So it took a long time to get this horse, you know, to come down to earth and to relax and, and, to, and to respect you know, the, the signals I'm giving him, uh, because he just wanted to go all the time. I mean, you can't run away in your practice turn, uh, which I did, you know, more than once with this horse. So it took a long time to break him. And then now that I finally got him, uh, I wouldn't say he's broke yet. He still uh, acts like a colt a little bit. Um, and he's still a really young horse, but, um, now that I've got him, uh, back down to earth, he, he's, uh, he's just not, he's not the horse that I thought he would be. Um, so, you know, th- that happens in the sport track weight racing, obviously a useful horse, a useful horse. I'm going to keep this horse, you know, for a lot of years. Um, you know, he's sound, he's big, uh, he's happy, he's healthy. Um, but it just happens sometimes it don't live up to the potential. And then sometimes it's, it's like, um, you know, Nevada, for example, when I first bought Nevada, I really didn't care for the horse. Grandpa's the one that actually picked him out on the track in Winnipeg. And, uh, he had a huge ankle on him. Like we're talking the size of a tennis ball. Uh, it's called an oscillate. It, it, it's a, uh, it's a growth, uh, on the outside of the ankle. And the, once they set, they're usually fine, but sometimes there's a little bit of damage, uh, in the ankle as the oscillates are setting. So, um, this horse had this bad ankle. And then what happens is, uh, on the other side, Nevada started developing a knee and this is all, you know, before I had him uh, on the track. And, uh, so he had a bad knee on one side, a bad ankle on the other side. And, uh, he had a indented eye on the other, like just a, just a not a very good looking horse and grandpa bought him, uh, you know, cheap for like six, 700 bucks or something. Cause the horse was done running, uh, couldn't compete on the track anymore. Not to mention we found out later that he has a flapper, which means, uh, he can only get about 50% or 70% of the air, um, that he, that he actually needs to compete. And, uh, so I never really liked him. He didn't drive very good at all he was he was uh not aggressive he was going to be an out riding horse i thought like very calm very quiet um and then it just happened the first year i started driving i needed to, to fill a hole and uh and he was the only one i had sitting in the barn so i started hooking him and uh throughout the year he just started getting better and better and better and progressing and, and i started hooking him with nicer horses and whatnot and then um he just he, he quickly became um, my best horse, if not my second best horse, and uh, and now here we are three years later, and uh, and uh, you know I could sell him for for uh, well a lot more money than I bought him for that's for sure, and uh, I can make a lot more money than uh, than what I paid for him. So um, yeah, no, sometimes they just develop, and and sometimes uh, sometimes they they go downhill, and it just it's such a process for these horses to to turn into what they could be. So. Um, yeah, you just never really know, to be honest. Well, I, uh, I guess that's it for our horse talk. Uh, I feel like I've gotten to know uh, a good half of your barn, and I still haven't been to your barn yet. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's good, uh, good for for guys love talking about their own horses. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, everybody wants to talk about their own horses, so uh, um, and it's good to talk about the details. I think uh, you know of the horses and and uh, you know, what goes into a chuck wagon race and whatnot. So uh, if you guys have uh, any thoughts or views or you guys want us to maybe, you know, try something different, uh, we're open to everything. We got some, we've got some uh, more, uh, you know, high-quality guests coming up, guys that uh, uh, I want to talk to. Uh, one guy came to mind. Uh, I don't think anybody would be able to guess who it is. Um, you know, I was texting him uh, just the other day. Uh, and asked him if he was going to come on, and he, and he said he's going to. So we're going to record that uh, next week. And then, uh, you know, we got some other uh, elite, elite wagon drivers um, that are going to come on the podcast and uh, we'll try and pick their brains a little bit and uh, and uh, get people ideas about, you know, um, what it was like for them coming up and, and how they got to where they are today. So um, that's exciting. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to, to talk to those guys as well. And exciting news for you, Jason. You're hopping back on the WPCA right as you're going to defend your title at Rocky Mountain. Yeah, I guess. I guess I will be, uh, you know, trying to go back and and, and uh, win Rocky. That's the plan, anyways. Um, I'm going to borrow a couple horses from Dad uh, just because I turned a lot of mine out this year because I didn't really think I was going to be on the WPCA. So, you know, I'll be borrowing some horses from Dad, and uh, we should give those guys a run for their money. Uh, Rocky's kind of a funny track. 
uh, really, really favors the early heat. Uh, it tends to uh, um, get looser and heavier as the heats go on. So um, it favors this early heat, and that's kind of how I was able to get it done last year. I had some really nice horses. Uh, don't get me wrong, they're some of the best horses on the grounds now, and uh, that's been proven um, this year. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we should be able to be a pretty competitive and rocky. It's always tough to outrun the top guys, like don't get me wrong, you know. Um, but uh, it kind of works out if I can hook, you know, some nice enough horses and if I can get out there and steal the rail, um, you know, a few times over, well, then, uh, you know, that makes it quite a bit easier to, uh, you know, you get a free trip around the track, you get the shortest trip. And uh, as long as there's enough competition for your horses, uh, if they, if they want to keep running, a horse will always run harder um, if there's someone beside him challenging him, um, you know, that's something. And it, and it can't really be his friend because he, they know. Uh, they realize during races, they know, um, and they try, you know, a heck of a lot harder. If there's a wagon right beside them or a little bit ahead of them, uh, you know, they'll really give it their all. So um, as long as I can keep them uh, competitive and, and uh, you know, really giving me um, some good runs, um, it should be tough there. And uh, I, again, will be doing the social media stuff. Um, like Dayton said, if you do have any uh, any messages for us, any questions, any feedback, um, if you want to guess who our next guest is, um, I'm kind of interested to see if anybody will be able to guess it because I don't think me and Dayton have told anyone who it is. Um, send us a message. We have... Uh, Instagram after at after the ninth. Uh, we have Facebook, like the Facebook page. Uh, there's also now a Twitter account that is set up. You're welcome, Dayton. Um, and uh, we also have uh, the email account, which is after the ninth questions at gmail dot com. Yeah, everybody. Um, Cass has you know been taking over social media. I should be doing some more uh, takeovers, I guess uh, we call them. Um, so we post some more content and whatnot on there. And, uh, yeah, appreciate the feedback at Brisbane Giving. And I uh, appreciate everybody listening. And that is the end of Episode 2. We will see you next week. I'm Cass Patterson with Dayton Sutherland. And have a good one. See you. But that's a day in the country.